as on Sunday morning we continue our gleaning series in Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisle right now and uh, put a Bible into your hand marked to our passage for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. But one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And so he that is Abraham believed in the Lord, and he that is the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees, uh, Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all of these things to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, No, certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, that is, the pieces of the sacrifice. Let's uh, pray now. Father, thank you so much for your word. And it really is a treasure chest of everywhere we turn. It tells us something new that we wouldn't otherwise know. And Lord, we thank you for uh, every truth that it contains and how uh, it, none of it is unnecessary for our understanding of you and for us to fully experience the Christian life. And we pray for the uh, absolute priceless treasures that are found in these verses here this morning, that you would take them off of the printed page take them out of human history, and Lord, introduce them into uh, the uh, personal relationship and the intimacy of that relationship 
with you this morning. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The context of this chapter in the book of Genesis is laid out for us in the opening three words of the chapter, as you notice in verse 1, after these things, and uh, in God, uh, God's opening words to Abraham uh, in the same verse uh, of verse 1, do not be afraid, uh, Abram. And so Abram was afraid at this point in his life and in his service to God. Uh, God would not have told him not to be afraid unless he uh, was afraid. Well, what in the world was Abram afraid of at this point? And I think that after these things, that phrase speaks to uh, exactly what he was afraid of. Abram had just defeated a confederation of four kings who had just uh, defeated a confederation of five kings, uh, including the king of Sodom and the city of Sodom itself, resulting in the release of his nephew uh, Lot's uh, captivity on the part of these kings, and uh, whose release was uh, the main goal of Abram's attack upon those kings to secure the release of his nephew uh, Lot. And, uh, 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 and uh, as all of us explained there in chapter 14. So here's Abram, he's won a great victory. He has secured the uh, release of his nephew Lot and as well as all of the other captives and, and he was honored by the king of Sodom and uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And Abram received the honor of Melchizedek but he refused any attempt by the king of Sodom to uh, honor him or to reward him because both the king and the city were uh, extremely uh, wicked. But now uh, here is uh, Abram and he is in uh, the aftermath of the battle. And uh, the adrenaline now that, uh, you know, pulses within our bodies at a time like that is now beginning to wane and and uh, wear off the, the adrenaline of that victory. And Abram realized that he had just poked four uh, great kings in that region of Canaan uh, in the eye, and that he had won his victory against them with a relatively small force. And he had done it, uh, we know, uh, uh, supernaturally speaking, it was the grace of God, but humanly speaking, he had done it really by uh, a, a surprise, the element of surprise coming upon them uh, in the night while they were celebrating their victory over the other, other kings. And he had to be thinking that what in the world was to keep them from now reforming themselves with the survivors of the battle and then launching a proper act attack against Abram. And here is Abram. He's out in a plain. He's out in a field. And he has no city. He has no city walls to hide behind. Uh, there he is, his wife, his family, all of his servants, all of his flocks spread out completely in the open in these fields. He is the picture of vulnerability in terms of any kind of a counterattack or an attack uh, of vengeance to be brought uh, upon him. 
and he's worried that they might come and attack him and utterly slay uh, everyone as a result of it and bring it into God's promise to him there in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 and 3 to make of him a great nation and to bless him and to make his name great and to bless those who would bless him and to curse those who would curse him and the promise that in him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And so he's afraid. And uh, naturally speaking, anyone in his shoes would be afraid. And thus the Lord came to Abram in a vision, as we're told here in verses 1 through 6. And God essentially uh, reaffirms his covenant uh, with Abram that he will be the father of a great nation that he will be the father of a great people. We notice in verse 5 that this vision occurs uh, during the night, and in verse 1 that the Lord reassured Abram with the words, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And the use, uh, speaking of shield, it was God's way of communicating to Abram, I am the one who is your protector. I am the one who is your uh, defender. And I know that you feel very, very vulnerable. You feel very, very defenseless at this point in time, uh, having no walled city to return to after your victories. But I will, in the fullness of my wisdom, in the fullness of my power, I will be your defense. And I will be your exceedingly great reward. And this is God's promise, not only to be Abram's protection, but to be Abram's uh, provider as well. And in verse 2, at this point, having God on the line, so to speak, Abram then raised a second concern of his uh, to the Lord. And Abram reminded God that despite his promise, God's promise to Abram ten years earlier uh, to make a great nation of him, that he was still uh, without a child, and that if he were to die, that Eliezer from Damascus, who was his uh, head servant uh, among his servants, would become his heir. And in essence, Abram is saying to God, what, is the, what does it mean at all to uh, all the good is it, the, all of the great wealth that I presently possess, and now here you give me the promise of even more physical wealth, and what does any of it mean to me if I don't have uh, an heir to pass it on to? And according to the custom of, of that day, if a man was without an heir. He was without uh, a child to pass his uh, uh, belongings onto after he uh, died. Then he would adopt someone as his son, and most often you would take your most loyal servant to become your heir. And Abram told God that in the current state of things that, uh, that Eliezer would become his heir. And Abram is now about 85 years old. God gave him the promise of a son at 75 uh, years old. And so if it looked like a promise that was in jeopardy at the age of 75, uh, in essence, it's like God, uh, the time is, uh, the, the clock is ticking here. 
and this is becoming, the possibility of it is becoming ever more uh, remote. And so he, uh, he uh, shares all of these things with the Lord, and it's important to understand that the, that the wealth was not Abraham's, <clears throat> excuse me, greatest concern here. Uh, if wealth was his greatest concern, he would have never uh, declined the great wealth that was offered to him by the king uh, of Sodom. What Abram longed for was the fulfillment of God's plan for his life, the fulfillment of God's promise for a nation to be birthed from him that would then become a blessing to the entire world. Well, God's answer to Abram here is in, found in verses 4 and 5. And God just flatly and plainly, unmistakably uh, tells Abram that Eliezer will not be his heir, but that an heir will come from his physical uh, body. And he gave Abram the very direct promise of a son. And then God proceeded to take Abram out uh, into the night and the night sky and told him to look toward heaven and then to count all of the stars if he was able to do so and then declared that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. It's a beautiful picture really uh, to see here the intimacy of relationship between Abram and God and God giving him this physical means by which to drive home the point that that uh, a a great and numerous nation will come uh, from his uh, bloodline. And God was communicating, in other words, I will protect you and I will provide for you until these promises that I've made to you uh, come to pass. And uh, and then Abram's response is recorded in verse 6 in what is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, and he believed in the Lord, and he that is God accounted it to him, that is to Abram, uh, for righteousness. And at that moment, Abram, hearing this promise from God, he simply believed the promise that God had given to him in verses 4 and 5, and his faith in the promise of God was then accounted to him for righteousness. And here in verse 6, And I think that Pastor David Guzik puts it so perfectly, you have, and I quote now, one of the clearest expressions in the Bible of the truth of salvation by grace through faith. Uh, You have here one of the clearest expressions in the Bible of the truth of salvation by grace through faith. And that is absolutely perfectly uh, put. And where do we see, where do we find this uh, uh, amazingly clear uh, declaration of salvation uh, by grace through faith? In the New Testament? No, we find it in the Old Testament. And we don't find it in the book of Malachi as the Old Testament is coming to a close. We don't find it in the book of Psalms. We don't find it in the historical books spoken by David. We find it in the very first book of the Old Testament, in Genesis itself. And it is also important to realize that this is the first time in the Bible that the word believe is used 
and the first time in the Bible that the word righteousness appears uh, in it. And it is fascinating to realize that the first time that each of those words are used individually in the Bible, that they are used by the Holy Spirit together to communicate that it is by believing or on the basis of faith that a person establishes a right standing before God, uh, can enter into a relationship uh, with, uh, with God. And uh, in Bible hermeneutics, and that is simply a, uh, is Bible study and interpretation, there's a law that is used that is often very, very helpful in studying any particular subject within the Bible, and, uh, and it provides uh, some oftentimes needed insights into the study of a particular subject in the Bible. And it's a law known as the law of first mention, which observes that the context of the first mention of any subject in the Bible or any word within the Bible, that very often it holds the key to understanding this subject in the remainder uh, of the Bible. That the first mention of any subject, uh, that the Holy Spirit is introducing that subject very often in its simplest form, in its purest form, uh, from which he will then build upon it. That the first mention is intended to really set the trajectory of that truth now for the rest of uh, the, the Bible. And by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul certainly understood uh, this to be true, and he certainly understood the immense significance of verse 6, the understanding that salvation, that is possessing a right standing before God as a sinner, uh, we would speak of it as salvation, that it can never be achieved on the basis of good works. It can never be achieved on the basis of, of human effort, but solely on the basis of faith. And when Paul, of course, writes about this uh, continually in his uh, various letters that make up a, a portion of the New Testament, but he really developed it most extensively in his epistle to the church at Rome. And in that book of Romans in chapter 3, he repeatedly drives home the point that our salvation is not something that we can achieve or that we can earn on the basis of good works or on the basis of human effort or on the basis of human uh, merit and that it cannot even be achieved on the basis of some attempt to keep the law of Moses, but that it can only become ours on the basis of faith, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abram to make uh, the descendants of his bloodline a blessing to all nations. And in that Romans chapter 3, some of you are familiar with it, uh, Paul speaks and he talks about 
uh, salvation in terms of through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, to all and on all who believe, through faith, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law, by faith, through faith, through faith. It fills the entire chapter. And in that chapter, the Apostle Paul also very, very boldly and very, very dramatically declared that this truth is not merely a truth of the New Testament, but it is an Old Testament truth as well. In Romans chapter 3, Paul uh, declared and wrote, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this is an Old Testament truth. This is not merely a New Testament truth. He went, said later in that same chapter, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And then in Romans chapter 4, Paul went on to develop all of it more fully. And he does so from the passage that we're studying uh, this morning. He does it from the life of Abraham and, and quoting Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. In Romans chapter 4, he writes, and allow me to read it to you. He said, what then shall we say that Abraham our father was found, uh, 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 what then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And the Apostle Paul now quotes uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He uses Abram as an illustration here, knowing that if he could show the Jews and us from the Old Testament scriptures that Abram, Abraham was declared righteous in the eyes of God on the basis of faith and not on the basis of works, then the argument principally with the Jews at his time who were convinced that the way to get to heaven was by keeping the law of Moses, then Paul knew that in using Abram and Abraham, both names referred to the same person, then it would settle the argument for them. Because Abraham was arguably the most highly esteemed Old Testament character among the Jews. He was the very father uh, of the Jewish people. I mean, he is the man that God used to uh, birth the Jewish people into human history. They owed their entire existence uh, to Abraham. He was their first patriarch of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fame. And twice in the New Old Testament, he is described as a friend of God. And here is someone who doesn't merely know about God. Uh, here is someone who knows God intimately and deeply and personally. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul reminded his Jewish uh, readers and us 
that of what was the source and the foundation of Abraham's personal relationship with God, what was the source and the foundation of his justification, of his imputed righteousness, of his salvation, and, and that it was received on the basis of faith. And Paul, I mean, you almost have to put yourself back in history 2,000 years ago. As Paul writes the book of Romans, quoting this passage, and he reminds the Jewish people and the entire world that the father of faith, Abraham, had an imputed righteousness. And it's very important for each of us as Christians and, and indeed the entire world to realize that the doctrine of justification by faith that salvation is received not on the basis of faith in Christ. It is not received, it is not something that is earned, but it is something that is offered to us as a gift, which we simply receive by faith, to understand that this is not merely a New Testament truth that somehow violates the teachings uh, of the Old Testament, or that somehow, as many people claim, that it was an invention of the Apostle Paul, but that it has its foundation in the prophets and in the law and in the Old Testament and indeed in Abraham himself. How many Christians are there that exist? Hopefully not in this room, but maybe, uh, but in the entire world who are absolutely convinced in a complete misunderstanding of the Bible that somehow people became followers of God and were saved in one way in the Old Testament, by keeping the law of Moses, uh, by human effort and by works, and then now those of us uh, in, the new, in the New Testament, now we're saved through a faith in Christ. And Paul comes in and declares that no, it has always been uh, by faith all along. And it wasn't just the Apostle Paul who taught this. Again, the accusation that's made against him so often, that this is an invention that, uh, that he brought uh, to Christianity, uh, that Jesus never taught this, that, that the other apostles never advocated for this in the way that Paul did. And yet John the Baptist taught it as well. In John chapter 3, verse 36, he declared concerning Jesus, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son uh, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, the apostle Peter taught in, in preaching to the Roman centurion Cornelius in his household in Acts chapter uh, 10. Uh, he uh, declared, and we are witnesses of all things that he, that is Jesus, did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. 
Him God raised up on the third day and showed Him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from uh, the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is He who is or, was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And here it is. To Him who all the prophets witnessed that, through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And the Holy Spirit was so pleased with this declaration of the Apostle Peter that we're told that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon uh, those who heard the word. The Apostle John taught in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Salvation on the basis of, uh, of faith. And of course, the most authoritative voice uh, in human history, uh, to say nothing of, uh, of in the Bible itself, uh, is what Jesus taught in the course of his life and his public ministry in this regard. And the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Justification by faith. And then Jesus declared elsewhere in John chapter 6, verse 47, Verily, verily, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John chapter 12, verse 44, Jesus cried out and he said, He who believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light to the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. There was a great multitude that gathered around Jesus in John chapter uh, 6, and they came asking him, what shall we do that we might do the works of God, that we might, and the idea is that we might be able to human effort ourselves into heaven, that we might work our way into heaven, uh, that we might in some way uh, engage in some uh, religious activity that will cause us to one day uh, merit heaven. And that's the question they're posing to Jesus. And Jesus answered and he said to them, this is the work of God. They've got their pens out. They've got their pad out. They're ready to write down whatever it is that he has to say. And they're expecting a long list of do's and don'ts from him. But that's not what he gave to them. He said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he, that is the Father, uh, sent. All of it on the basis of faith. No invention of the Apostle Paul. Uh, no, you know, obscure truth of, of the New Testament uh, or, or the Old Testament. And uh, now one of the, the several covenants in the Bible uh, is what is known as the Abrahamic uh, covenant based upon God's promises to uh, Abraham 
in uh, uh, Genesis chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, first, that God would bring into existence a great nation, a great people from him, speaking of the Jews. Second, that God would give them a land that he would uh, show Abram. And then third, that God would bless the entire world through Abram and his descendants. And the apostle Peter, when he stands up in Jerusalem following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and his, a, a great crowd gathers around him on the basis of a miracle that has been uh, performed. And in his sermon there in Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 24 through 26, the section that I'll read to you today, uh, G, here is the apostle Peter, and he declares that this entire covenant that God had made with Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, has been fulfilled in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Peter preached and he said, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have uh, also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in you, your, and in your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And here is Peter declaring Jesus to be the fulfillment of the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant and of those promises. But here in, in Genesis chapter 15, God not only uh, lays out this, uh, this great truth of the Bible concerning the most important subject in life, and that is how to be saved, forgiven of our sins, enter into a relationship uh, with God one day to enter into uh, the glory uh, of heaven. Not only does this passage make all of that uh, clear, but here in Genesis chapter 15, God then entered into a formal covenant with Abram by which he formally confirmed that he would keep these promises that I had just, have just mentioned. You notice in verses 7 uh, through 21, I know some of your hearts are sinking at this moment. Uh, we won't be nearly as long in this as we've been in setting the foundation uh, for it. But what happens in these, in these verses is that God now formally confirms his covenant with uh, Abram. And having uh, already promised that a great nation uh, and great in number would come into existence through him in verses 4 and 5, God then formally promised the land of Canaan or the land of Israel to Abram and to his descendants as an inheritance there in verse 7. And then Abram in verse 8, as he's listening to these amazing promises that God is reminding him of, he clearly is seeking reassurance concerning these things. And he asked the Lord in verse 8, Lord God, what shall I do that I may inherit it? 
And Abram already believed the promise that God had made, uh, that the land would be given to him uh, and his descendants. Uh, 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 But it was common in those days for a promise when it was made, for it then to be confirmed by way of a covenant by way of a contract, a, a formal agreement is an evidence of, of each party's intention to keep their promise in the contract, in, in the deal. And God responded to Abram's request for a covenant concerning all of these promises. And he responds in the most remarkable way And he does so in a way that is very, very familiar to Abram culturally and very, very familiar in the culture of of the ancient world and that that part of the world. In verses 9 and 10, he calls on Abram to bring forth three animals and uh, two birds for the purpose of sacrifice that those animals were to be cut into, and then uh, each side of the animal was to be laid uh, opposite the other on the ground, uh, the other half. And then the birds were not to be uh, cut in this way, but one bird was to be placed on uh, one side and and the other bird uh, uh, upon the other. And all of which Abram proceeded to do. Now, of course, all of this is very, very foreign uh, to us today. But this was the way in which contracts were signed in the ancient uh, world. When we make a deal with uh, someone uh, and uh, we do so, we seal it maybe by shaking hands uh, to seal the deal. Or going to a lawyer's office, a contract has been drawn up and now we enter the deal by each party now signing uh, the contract. Well, people didn't read and write in the ancient world in that way. And they certainly didn't have uh, parchment and pen and, the, and uh, paper in the way that, uh, that, that we have it. And so in uh, ancient covenants or agreements between two parties were confirmed by uh, having, uh, having an, that is to cut into of, of a sacrificial animal. And then having both parties enter into the agreement. And they would enter into the agreement by having the animal would be sacrificed, placed into, there would be a path between the sacrifices. And then each party entering into the covenant would walk between the two uh, sacrifices. And uh, that was a way of entering into the, the agreement. And uh, we find God uh, uniquely uh, using this imagery uh, to condemn the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people uh, to the law of Moses in Jeremiah chapter 34. The image, this was so common a practice in the ancient world, God could speak of it and they would understand exactly what he was uh, talking about. They were being unfaithful to the covenant that they had made uh, with, with him. And uh, so this was uh, the, it, 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 it appears that the, the essence of all of this was that if both parties would then walk between the two halves of a sacrifice, that uh, in entering into the covenant, that they were vowing to become uh, like this dead animal now, uh, if they were to ever violate 
the covenant, and thus the sacrifices were laid out. In, in this passage, God gives Abram uh, some further revelations concerning the Jewish people. Uh, in verse 11, uh, as the vultures come down, uh, sacrifices are laying out. It's the next day, at least, from when he, Abram had been taken out and looked up into the heavens and saw the stars and, and the promise concerning his descendants. And as these sacrifices are laid out, these vultures begin to come down on the animal carcasses. They're being driven away by Abram. And all of it probably represents the fact that uh, all of this would occur in the face of, of tremendous demonic opposition, birds being a sign of the devil uh, so often in the Scriptures. And then when the sun went down in verses 13 and 14, we're told that a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and, uh, and he is experiencing uh, horror in, in his vision and uh, a great darkness in, in his vision. And here he is informed of the 400 years of bondage that his descendants would experience in the land of Egypt before they would uh, take possession of the land. And then in verse 15, he was informed of the fact that he would not live to see all of this occur, but that he would die in peace at an old age. And then in verse 16, he's given the reason for this 400-year uh, delay that was going to occur uh, in, in his descendants taking the land uh, of Canaan under Joshua, and it was because of the, the iniquity of the Amorites was, would not be complete until then. And then God does the most amazing thing in verse 17. And if I've lost you anywhere along the way, please come back at this point. He does the most amazing thing in the form of a smoking fire pot and a burning torch. Uh, both of those things representing the presence of God. And God alone then passed uh, uh, through the path between uh, those uh, uh, halves of the sacrifices. And what God was communicating was that this covenant, this contract, these promises to Abram would be fulfilled by God alone, that they would be fulfilled completely independent uh, of Abram, and that in doing so, God was communicating to Abram, Abram, my promise to you is based solely upon me and solely upon my faithfulness and not upon yours. And God, in entering into this covenant with Abraham, he makes this covenant as one-sided as you can possibly make a covenant. The responsibility for the fulfillment of it, God was saying, lay completely, 100% upon himself. You simply could not and cannot make a covenant more one-sided more God-founded than uh, what God does here. And thus, the fulfillment of the covenant is sure because it is based solely on the promise of God, 
solely upon the faithfulness of, of God and His faithfulness to His Word rather than uh, upon the human effort of man. And in the same way concerning our salvation, when Jesus introduced the Lord's Supper, on the night before his death upon the cross in order to uh, purchase our salvation, he declared to the disciples in introducing the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He did not say this is a new covenant in my blood and your human effort. This is not a new covenant in my blood and uh, your best effort or your human merit, uh, or, or your trying hard. Uh, there is nothing added to it. It is based solely upon one thing. This cup is the covenant, a uh, new covenant in my blood. And the idea is that this covenant is based upon my blood and my blood alone. And Jesus was declaring in all of this that he was providing us with a salvation that God could not have made more one-sided, more God-centered than he has. And that is in providing us with a finished salvation which is based solely and entirely upon Jesus' work upon the cross. And because our salvation is based upon what Christ has done for us, rather than what we are doing for God, it is a sure salvation. And when Jesus hung upon the cross the following day, one of the things that he cried out on that cross, he cried out concerning the salvation he was providing to us. And he cried out, it is finished. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The provision for the forgiveness of our sins was uh, finished. It was provided for in his death upon the cross. And Jesus in declaring that, declared that he has provided mankind with a finished salvation. Uh, not a partial sal salvation. Uh, it's, and because it is a finished salvation, it is a sure salvation because it's based upon the surest thing of all. And that is his promises and his finished work upon the cross. If we could add anything to that salvation uh, in terms of human effort, if we would endeavor to, we would only mar the finished salvation that he has provided to us. And if we ever try to add to that salvation that God has provided in his son and then has offered to us as a gift, to be received as a gift, then if we were to try to add any works to that, then that salvation would cease to become, or cease to be rather, a sure thing. In other words, if at the moment you were saved, uh, and God was to say to you, all right, you've put your faith in my son, you're saved now, 
And, uh, but this is just the beginning. I give you your salvation, but now it's up to you to hold on to it. Imagine if we were saved and God said, all right, you're saved. And he gave each of us a little red golf ball and said, now you're saved. And, uh, and if at the end of your life, you still uh, have in your possession by human effort, uh, you still possess that little red golf ball and you can present it to God, then you can enter into heaven. Uh, how relaxed would you be about your salvation? If it was dependent in the smallest way upon us of just keeping track of a single golf ball for the rest of our life. You say it, 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 that it, we would look at it and say, it, 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 that's to ask so little of us. But even to add the smallest thing that we might add to it makes it completely uncertain. We would be a nervous wreck for the rest of our life carrying that red golf ball around. We'd have it in our front pocket. We'd be feeling for it uh, 60 times a minute to make sure that it was still there making sure that we hadn't lost it. We'd be a nervous wreck uh, the, the entire uh, time, worried about it. Why? Because we know that nothing that depends upon us in life is sure. And we want our salvation to be sure. And Abram wanted assurance regarding God's promises to him, and thus God gave him assurance in the form of the most one-sided covenant in the Old Testament. And as Christians, we want assurance of our salvation, and thus Jesus has given to us, uh, it to us in the form of the most one-sided covenant in the New Testament, in the form of a finished salvation provided to us solely on the basis of Jesus' blood shed for us on that cross, on the basis of his sacrifice in order to provide us with propitiation, to provide us with the full and satisfying payment required by God for the forgiveness of our sins. And all of it is a gift from God, received through faith by simply trusting in Jesus as uh, 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 to be the Savior that he promises to be. And then he will faithfully be that Savior to us. And I say hallelujah and praise the Lord for that. God knows very well not only how to save us, but he knows very well who he is saving and to not entrust even emote the smallest iota of our salvation to us and to our human effort. And as we began this series in Genesis, I made mention of Jesus' declaration in the Old Testament scriptures as he spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he said, you search the scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. Salvation is not uh, gained by keeping the laws of the Old Testament. It is something that is received through a faith in Christ. In other words, as, as Jesus made that declaration to the Jewish religious leaders, no passage of scripture 
in the entire Bible, including the Old Testament, uh, is uh, ever fully understood until it is brought to Jesus, until it is examined for what it reveals to us about Jesus. And I also made mention of an old saying at that time which speaks to this as well concerning the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the saying is this, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. And here in the Old Testament, we have this beautiful and powerful picture of not only salvation on the basis of faith as opposed to works, but also of the absolute sureness of our salvation as a result, because it is based upon God and His promises, and not upon our works and our human effort. And just as God wanted Abram to live in the absolute assurance concerning the Abrahamic covenant, He wants us to live in the absolute assurance of the greater and the new covenant in Jesus to save us and to keep us. Our salvation is not something that we work for, but something that we work from. And so this wonderful passage, any time for the rest of our lives as Christians, we would begin to doubt the truthfulness, the validity of our salvation on the basis of some failing on our part before God. To first look, first of all, to Jesus as he introduces the Lord's Supper and the new covenant made solely based upon his blood. But then to put, allow that Old Testament imagery, which is a type or a picture of it in the Old Testament, And to see that torch making its way between those sacrifices there as a picture of how one-sided God has made this entire thing so that we will have the assurance of our salvation against every doubt and every attack that God desires us to have. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, Uh, You could hardly pose a greater question to Jesus than the one that was posed, as I mentioned earlier, as people came to him and said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And the idea is now, how do we work our way to heaven? How do we get a relationship with God? And as Jesus declared once again to them, this is the work of God. It is to simply believe uh, in him, that is in Jesus, whom he, that is the Father, has sent. Salvation is a gift to us. That's why it is a sure thing. And if you have never trusted in Jesus for that salvation, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you and for you to receive that salvation this morning. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning under the, just the weight of the, the glory and the weightiness of your word on this subject. 
we thank you for providing us with a finished salvation. We thank you for making the covenant upon which our salvation is based so fully one-sided as you have made it in order that it might be something that is sure within our lives. Thank you for knowing us the way that you do. Thank you for knowing that you could, we could never in the smallest way merit or earn or even maintain or keep uh, salvation if it was entrusted to us as a gift, but we played some part in it. Thank you for how you have blessed us, the peace that is ours because of not only the salvation that you've provided to us, but how you have done it. We praise you for your wisdom. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your power behind all of this. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.